All right, we'll go ahead and get started. So we'll be in Numbers uh, chapter 22 through 24 this morning. So I'll uh, pray for us. Uh, the other, we'll probably be a little bit, uh, well, at least I'm going to read some passages in Genesis as we go along too, like uh, probably earlier in Genesis. So if you want to have that um, in your mind, that might help. But let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for uh, the blessings of being your people, uh, that you have caused your face to shine on us in a unique way, um, especially now as we have seen the glory um, that you have in the face of Christ, who has come, uh, lived on earth, uh, died, and rose again. And so we pray that we would honor you, we'd glorify you, and we would be um, thankful to be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, theme of numbers, the theme of numbers has been God's faithfulness to his promises, even when his people fail, right? We've seen that, that's pretty, two things we've seen over and over again, God's faithfulness, people failing, God's faithfulness, people failing. Uh, that, that doesn't mean no discipline, right? Part of God's faithfulness is he disciplines his people. We've seen that multiple times. Um, and even, even if you'll remember, um, <clears throat> As we approached the end, or where we're at now, not really the end, but we still have more to go, but we're getting closer to the end of Numbers. We're coming to a point where a whole generation has been disciplined. Some of them judged, because some of them probably don't truly believe. We've seen that multiple times where there's just been high-handed rebellion. Um, but we're coming to the end of that, that generation, and it's been a long, slow, hard road for the Israelites. Right? I mean, you're talking like, uh, I mean, they've been traveling through the wilderness uh, at probably about like eight miles per year, right? I mean, so you, you, next time you're stuck in traffic, just think about that, right? Um, they, they move very slowly. And I mean, obviously, they're not just like consistently moving eight, you know, it's not, but the point is they're wandering in the wilderness. And it, if you were to break it down, it probably takes them that long to cover that much terrain, Um so we have the first generation that is dying off here. They were the ones who experienced being freed from Egypt, set apart to worship God, um, being called to live under his uh, rule in his place, right? He's calling them to the land. He gives them the law, all these different things. And yet they rebel. When it comes time to enter the land, they say, look, we're not going to enter. Uh, it's too, these people are too big. Um, basically, we don't believe your promises. We don't believe you're with us. We don't believe you're going to bring us into your place to live under your rule. Um, we'd rather go back to Egypt, frankly right, where things were easier. Uh, and so they're seeking ease, comfort, um, physical security as, in terms of the way they perceive that over and against trusting in God and glorifying God. And so they're consigned to wander in the wilderness, but God is still going to fulfill his promises. He's still faithful. And so we, we hear that this, the up and coming generation is going to be the one, they're going to be the ones that are going to get to inherit this land. Um, and so then we, we have this whole thing where they're wandering and the older generation is dying off. Many people don't read numbers, at least uh, not regularly. Um, but in spite of that, there are still certain stories that people remember in numbers. So what's, what's maybe one or two um, like stories, whether they're key stories or they're just interesting stories. In fact, they really are pretty all key stories here. But what are some ones that people think of regularly when they think of numbers? The talking donkey. The talking donkey, which is where we're going to be today. Yeah. What else? Okay, yeah, we think of the, the speaking to the rock, striking the rock uh, thing where he's supposed to speak, but he ends up striking the rock. Yep. The budding staff. The, the budding staff, yes, yeah. Did you say something? Quail. Okay, so God providing for his people throughout the woods. So you have quail, you have manna, things like that being provided. Yep. So you guys know a lot from numbers. This is good. I feel like you're ahead of the curve. 
Most people would probably be like, you know, one or two things. Can you say something, Jim? Oh, okay. You're like, I just moved my hand at the wrong time. Let that be a note to anyone moving their hand. I was going to say all the lists are memorable. All the lists. Are, yeah, well, you do. I mean, it's true. You may not remember what's in all the lists, but you remember there are a lot of lists in the book of Numbers, right? Yeah. Um, one, uh, another one is that the, the bronze serpent being lifted up, right? And, and part of the reason we, we know about that is probably more so from John 3, 16, 3, uh, 15, 16, 17, that area where Jesus refers to that event and says, so, you know, I, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And then he gives uh, John three sixteen to us. Um, so yeah, so, so we have a lot, of, a lot of different things that may come to mind, but today, th- today is one of those. T- today is one of those when we talk about this talking uh, donkey that we're going to see, this prophet Balaam or Balaam, however you want to uh, say it. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look at this passage, and um, what we're going to see is that uh, God is faithful uh, we're going to see, and, and more than, and when I say faithful, what we're going to do is we're going to see that this connects back to promises made earlier in the storyline. So you'll need to remember that um, Numbers is not a standalone by itself book. And I mean, one says none of the books in the Bible are. They, we have 66 different books, but we have one big storyline, which again is a test to the fact we have one author. I mean, you're talking that many different books over a long, large period of time by multiple different human authors, one storyline. Uh, and not just a storyline that's like fictional. I mean, I suppose a bunch of authors could do that over centuries, but you're talking a storyline that actually unfolds in time, space, and history and involves a bunch of people that are doing what they most want to do but still end up doing what God says is going to happen, right? Um, and so that, that takes uh, only, uh, that type of authorship is something only God can put together. Um, but, but I guess what I'm saying about Numbers is, Numbers is in the, this grouping called the Pentateuch, right, written by Moses. And so as, he's get, as he refers to things throughout the storyline, we very much need to be reminded and, and be hearkened back to earlier times in the Pentateuch when he says things, when God says things. And so we're going to see that happens today as well. So let's set the scene here. Numbers 21. Um, <clears throat> so Numbers, uh, well, let me think about this. I meant to say Numbers 22, is that right? Yeah. Um, so at the end of 21, you'll remember they defeat Og, which is one of the kings on the Transjordan area. I don't have my fancy maps today, although I did put together that PowerPoint. I just didn't bring my computer, so just visualize it in your head. Um, the Transjordan meaning the opposite side of the Jordan River, right, which separates that land to the east to what's officially kind of a promised land proper, right, on the other side, that that's Mediterranean Sea to that, um, river. Um, so they're on the other side of the river. They have not crossed over into the land yet. And, um, and then we see uh, Balak here is going to summon Balaam. Then, this is chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at, uh, at Jericho. So they're kind of across from Jericho. And Jericho is going to be a big issue when we get to Joshua, right? And, you, and you'll remember, really, uh, from where we're at in Numbers, all the way through a good chunk of, really, Deuteronomy, we're in the same area, in this Plains of Moab area. So the, the, the timeline, the narrative timeline slows down a lot. We just covered 40 years in a period of just a couple chapters, and now it's going to slow down. We're going to have a whole other book leading up to Joshua's the next time they're really going to move somewhere, and time is going to really speed up again. Um, so they're on these plains of Moab, verse 2, and, and Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all, the, all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So what that's referring to is what we saw in chapter 1. 
They just, or chapter 21, they just defeated Sihon and Og and took their land. And Moab, Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Okay, so how does uh, Moab or the king of Moab feel about Israel? Dread. dread, fear, right? Why? Too many people. Lots of people. They just defeated two other kings that border me, essentially, and they're just camped right to the north of me right now. So, so where Moab is is just a little bit south of where Israel is camped right now, waiting on what they're supposed to do. So he's seeing all this unfold. He's very concerned about this. Um, look at verses 4 and 5. And Moab, so this is actually referring to the king, but he's being referred to by his land. Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me. So we have two people here specifically mentioned, uh, Balak. He is the king of Moab. He's the one who's very concerned here. And then we have Balaam, who is a pagan prophet, uh, diviner or seer who comes from the east. He's probably a couple hundred miles to the east, actually. Um, And so he's, uh, in fact, there's an inscription that was found in the area that's kind of described here in Numbers where Balaam would have been from. And the inscription uh, says, Balaam, the son of Beor, the man who was a seer of the gods. So we're talking an inscription outside of Israelite territory. This is not something the Israelites would have written. But the point is we have archaeological evidence pointing us back to the reality of this, this seer named Balaam, who obviously was well known. That's the point. He obviously was well known because even hundreds of miles away, Moab knows about this guy, right? Uh, that, we'll come back to that in a little while. But um, okay, so what and why? And then we, we see that in verse six. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. So what? Curse them. Why? Because they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Okay, so cue the foreboding music in your head right now. Okay, why should there be foreboding music in your head based on the last line? He's cursing Israel. They're wanting to curse Israel. Wanting to curse Israel. And, and, and the way this is worded, does this parallel anything we've seen earlier in the first five books? Abraham. So it's going to come up in Deuteronomy. It's gonna, we see it with Abraham. We see it in Genesis, right? Um, so in uh, Genesis 12.3, so um, you don't, I'm just going to read one verse, so you don't have to necessarily turn there. But uh, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse right? Uh, Genesis 27, 29. So that was to um, Abraham. Genesis 27 to 29, Isaac blesses Jacob, who is also known as what? Israel, right? Because he's the father of the 12 tribes. And Isaac says, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So the foreboding music um, should be playing because this is similar to what God has said. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. But the king of Moab is saying, listen, Balaam, I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So do you see, we kinda, it's kind of almost like what we have going on with Pharaoh again. We have this pagan king who is really seed of the serpent type guy who is going to try to curse God's people, right? He's going he's gonna to undermine what God is doing is his, is his aim. So in other words, so we should have this kind of foreboding music that we're about to have a battle go down here, a spiritual battle. So let's look and see, Balak is going to summon uh, Balaam to curse Israel. 
He's going to have two different attempts because the first one is not going to go very well. Um, so let's, let's read these. So verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam and God came to Balaam, uh, Balaam and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So verse 11, we have the request, right? Um, it seems, you know, Balak is hoping that he'll get some sort of spiritual advantage. He recognizes maybe that he's outgunned, and so he, he, he needs some sort of spiritual advantage here. Um, and so he, he calls for Balaam. In one sense, you can think of Balaam like he is like a hired gun, right? He's like a spiritual assassin. That's kind of what he's being called to do. I want you to spiritually assassinate Israel so that I can take them out. Um, so obviously there, there's some sort of desire to get some sort of power spiritually, things like that. Um, now this might seem a little bit, uh, silly to us. And in, in one sense, it very much is silly because you have, we, we've read the storyline. We know you have the God who has made all things who said, listen, I'm going to bless Israel. And here you are talking about cursing them. Like that's going to help you. But you know, there is a sense in which we think it's silly that maybe it's, it's not silly. It's just our culture. And that is the fact that there really are denom, denom, uh, demonic powers. There, there really is such a thing as spiritual warfare, you know, we tend to think of everything very much in just physical terms. So we think, well, how silly. You're going to call them to just say some bad words about them, and that's going to do something. Uh, that's not really, the point is, there, there are evil spiritual powers. Now, none of it is bigger than God. None of it is able to thwart God's plan. But there are, there's real evil, not just human evil, but spiritual beings, right? Things like that. Uh, in terms of divination, there's this, this desire to curse them probably also involves, give me some sort of hint of what I should do. You know, kill the animal, put the entrails out and figure out what's going to happen and what will make me successful. Um, so, so we have all these things happening here. Even though we know that he's not going to win, we also should recognize there is a, a um, in some sense, Balak probably sees reality better than we do in our very anti-spiritual setting that we live in, right? So he calls him to curse him. Um, now I want to point out something here. If we don't read carefully, we might find ourselves confused about Balaam. Balaam is a pagan, though God will use him. I think we have to recognize that. Because if you just read this really quickly and you're not paying attention, you may think, well, I, you know, maybe Balaam's a good guy. Uh, you should at least be able, though, to pick up on, it's, even if you don't, if you, if you shouldn't think he's a good guy. You should at least be thinking, I don't know what to make of this guy. If you read it carefully, I think you recognize he's a pagan. He is, he is not worshiping the one true God. Um, he does go, uh, he, he recognizes something about the, the different, you know, because in his view, it's probably a bunch of different gods ruling over things. He's heard of the God who's brought these people out of Egypt. And so he goes and says, I'll inquire of that God, right? Not knowing that this is the one true God over everything, probably. Certainly not bowing the knee to this one true God. And yet God's still going to speak to him and tell him what's happening. Right? God is going to exercise his authority even over this pagan prophet. Um, so the, part of the reason we see this is verse 7. Notice what happens. They bring the fees for divination. Uh, they promise this idea of honoring him, which also goes with money. 
Um, also, Balaam is known from a few hundred miles away for his ability to do divination, which would include things like that God has outlawed already, right? God has said, you know, you're not going to go seek for all these omens. You're not going to go do. So Balaam is doing that. That's, that's his line of work, right? Um, and that's why he's being hired as a spiritual assassin here. Um, <clears throat> so Balaam says he's going to ask God, probably because he's heard of this, this God. He says, okay, I guess that's the God I got to go talk to and see what's going on, see if I can get to curse them. Uh, verse 12, God answers him. You can't go with them. You can't curse the people for they are blessed. So he basically says, look, I can't do it. Um, uh, now look at the next uh, inquiry in verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. Okay, so this is kind of like, you know, I sent a delegation of some low-ranking government officials who got rejected. Now I'm going to send whatever, right? I'm going I'm to send the Secretary of State now or something to show that I take this seriously, right? So he sends some more high-ranking officials um, to, to show that he's honoring Balaam. Verse 16, And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you a great honor. So I think that means prestige, but it also means money. So you can kind of see, this also shows us something about Balaam, that Balak realizes, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. I didn't offer you enough, we'll send more, and we'll get it done, right? So again, Balaam is not a good guy here. Um, I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, uh, the Net Bible has a helpful note here. They point out the my God statement is probably in, in light of the subsequent uh, events. It's pretty clear. He doesn't mean my God that I've submitted to. I think, I think the point is he's referring to Yahweh as his God in the sense that this is the God I have to go to to be able to curse these people because this is their God who brought them out and he's not going to let me do it. So in that sense, he has to report to this God. I don't think it's because he's worshiping God. And again, that's going to be very clear as we keep going through the storyline that he's, he's, not, he's not worshiping this God. Um, he's a master schemer. He's a master schemer. Yes, that's a good way to put it. He tried to make himself a servant of Jehovah and no to get money. That's right. That's right, yes. And so that's going to become very clear. So we're going to end up looking, Rod preached on this too in Second Peter. It's, he's equivalent to New Testament false teachers. They will claim to be aligned with the one true God, but they're not worshiping the one true God. They just see it as a means to whatever they wanted. So again, he's, he's sitting here saying, you know, I can't, my, well, my God won't let me do it. I don't think it means I worship this God. It means I'm trying to do business with this God to get done what I need to get done to get paid. He's saying he's not going to go along with it, so I can't do it right now. Um, and that's why Peter's going to say, these false teachers, are, they, they've gone the way of Balaam. Greed is what is motivating them. And that's exactly what's motivating him here. We see that. That's why he sends more money. Okay, I get it. And that wasn't enough money. We'll send you more money, right? Um, okay. So, um, oh, okay. So, so then, so he comes, he does this whole, this whole thing again. And he says, uh, look in verse, um, let's see, 18, but Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak, oh yes, I already read that, sorry. So, um, so now look at verses 19 through 21. So this is how Balaam, what he says to them. So you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. So you can see what he's, he's doing here. God has already told him, you can't do this, right? But he's kind of like a kid who's like, I'll just keep going and keep asking until I get what I want. Um, so he goes, he says, I'm gonna see what more, maybe there's something more, maybe, you know, I mean, he was pretty clear, like you shouldn't go with them, you can't curse them, but he's like, what more is he going to say? So he goes, 
Um, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, this is verse 20, if the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the prince of Moab, princes of Moab. Um, so he's going to go. Um, he uh, is going to go with them anyway. Now, one thing, a point of application here, I, again, Balaam is an unbeliever, but I think we, we recognize temptation works similar even in believers, even though we do have the ability to resist temptation. So Balaam has already been told no, you can't go, right? So there's a sense in which he's recognizing even this greedy desire is not, I, I shouldn't go that direction because I'm being told no by this God. But that's not the same thing as taking it seriously and saying, this is a problem. I need to put to death the temptation towards greed because he keeps going that direction, right? He goes back to God. Are you sure I can't do this? Because why? Because he really wants to get paid, Right? And we can do the same thing in temptation. We, we, can, we can kind of play around with it like it's not a big deal instead of just putting it to death. And so I think that would be a, a, maybe a New Testament application to us to not go the way of Balaam. Again, he is an unbeliever, so there's a distinction there. The direct application is probably more to unbelievers to say, look, don't think you can pretend like you're going to give lip service to God and just get whatever you want in the end. Use him as a means to get what you want. But I'm just saying, even as believers, there can be a temptation in that direction. That's the way temptation works, right? So we need to be aware of that. So God does permit him to go. I still think, um, even though he permits him, this is not an approval of him going for sure. It's definitely not an approval of him saying anything to curse Israel. And that's going to become clear in the next section. So this is the part that is really well known in Numbers, where Balaam and his donkey go for a walk, right? So Balaam, the, the seer, which is one, one of his roles, I just told you about that inscription. He's Balaam the seer, and he's going to be outseen by his donkey, so there's some irony here um, that's intended to teach us something and teach Balaam something. So I want to read this. It's a longer section. I want you to listen for repeated words, okay? Chapter 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow, in, uh, a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey. So take note, I mean, Balaam's starting, he's talking to his donkey here, right? <laughs> Balaam said to his donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life uh, long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his strong sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face, and the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I have 
I have not known I had I sorry I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore if it is evil in your sight I will turn back. And the Lord angel of the Lord said to Balaam, "Go with the men but speak only the word that I tell you." So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Okay. Any repeated words or ideas? There's I mean there's probably a bunch of them. I have one in mind, but you can throw out some and I won't swat you down if it's not the one I'm thinking because there are there are other repeated words. Struck. Struck, yeah. So he strikes the donkey multiple times. You have even the parallel idea that, um, I don't think he uses the word strike, but basically I, the, the angel says, I was going to kill you. I was going to strike you. I mean, it's a different word probably, but yeah. Good. What else? Any other repeated words, ideas? Eyes be open. Yeah. So, so we have... Balak, or sorry, Balaam is supposed to be a seer who can see spiritual realities, right? Can he see? So in the irony, what we're seeing is even this one who's seen as a powerful seer, and notice, again, there's not a denial that he has some sort of ability to work with evil spirits and all these other things. But the point is, he can't see unless the, the truth unless God's going to open his eyes to see it, and his donkey can you see how it's showing that Balak is, Balaam is a fool before the true living God. Anyone who's going to think they can curse the, the God, this living God's people is a fool. And that's where Balaam is. He, he thinks he can see clearly, but he cannot see clearly. He's blind. Um, so it's in, this, in this irony, we have a couple things being said. Number one is uh, what we see is it's very clear that God is in charge, not Balaam. Right? Nothing is going to escape what God wants to do here. Because it's even in his power to open up this guy's eyes to see true spiritual realities. Um, number two, we see uh, that it's, this helps ensure that Balaam is going to do exactly what God says. Because like I said, I still think the whole point is he is tempted and wanting to get paid through this whole thing. He is wanting to curse the people of Israel, right? And so God makes it very clear in letting you go, I was not, number one, I was just giving you what you wanted. I already told you you shouldn't go. I'm going to tell you you can go now because you're insisting on it. But I, was, I made it very clear that you're still only going to speak what I'm going to speak. And I think what we have happening here is Balaam is still thinking about how he's going to say curses to get what he wants. And the reason we, can, we know that is because, uh, and this goes down to the why is God angry part, because that may have confused you when you first read that. God says go, and the next verse says he's angry with him. But the angel of the Lord uh, uh, opposes him, we read, because his way is perverse. In other words, you're still going with a wicked intent. Your desire is still to curse the people of Israel. And I'm making it very clear to you that you will only speak what I tell you you can speak. So essentially, God is putting the fear of God in Balaam. Not in a repenting sort of way, but in a sort of like, you better toe the line. You're not in charge here, right? Uh, you see, I mean, you see an angel with a flaming sword telling you he about killed you. That's going to put some fear in you, right? So, so that, that's going to be in the back of his mind. Um. So um, one, one more point I'll make here is Balaam is coming from the east and he meets an angel holding, holding a flaming sword. Where have we seen a similar idea? Because again, first five books all go together here. Garden <clears throat> the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. They're moved out of the garden and at the entrance on the east side of the garden is put a uh, angel. We're not necessarily told it's the angel of the Lord, but an angel with a flaming sword, Right? So now we have this seer coming from the east trying to get to where? Towards God's place again. And think about what's significant in Israel. What's at the center of their camp? The tabernacle, which is kind of sort of a reinvigoration of, of, of the Garden of Eden. 
There's all this garden imagery in this temple, right? So just as God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden, there's a small, you know, small steps, but very important steps in that being reclaimed, that God is, he really is among his people in this temple in a special blessing way. And so you have Balaam trying to get into that, but he's not going God's way and he meets what? He meets an angel with a flaming sword. So this again pictures too, the fullness of all that the tabernacle points to is the new heavens and new earth one day, right? Uh, There's more going on. I'm not saying that's the only thing it does, but that's one thing it does point us to in the storyline. No one's gonna come into this this temple. No one's gonna come into this new heavens and new earth without coming God's way. You will meet flaming vengeance and it ultimately will be the Lord Jesus Christ bringing flaming vengeance, right? Uh, We read in um, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, one of the Thessalonians. Um, Can you just ask him? Um, why is he not more surprised that his donkey's talking? Yeah. What did you say? Yeah. Same, I mean, the same thing with Eve when the serpent spoke to her. It's like, these animals are talking and no one seems... Right. Surprised by it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Can you say something? Well, because Balaam himself was a, was a divination, and so it wasn't as... It made sense that he, could, he probably could have done it on his own if he had... Sure. Uh, yep. Yeah. So I think that's part of it is, you know, again, we we tend to think... Supernatural things don't happen because we don't see them happening every day. That doesn't mean there's not a real unseen supernatural thing going on in the world around us, including demonic things. Including, so, uh, that, so very well could just be that, you know, in his experience, he's seen crazier things than that. Um, that certainly could be part of it. Yeah. Can you say something? The thing that strikes me here is what's wrong with him? I mean, God gives him, God talks to him. He's yeah. accustomed to having angels of the Lord talk to him, evidently. Yeah. Reminds me of First Corinthians. Yeah. No love. Yeah. Uh, his motivation is personal greed. That's right. I don't know whether he cares about cursing Israel. Right. But he does want money. Yes, yeah. He wants fame and fortune. Yep. And he's happy to use God's blessings. Yeah. Of, of, of being a prophet to make prophets. Yes, that's right, yeah. And uh, he has no love. Yeah. And that's a good point, too, when you think about it. So uh, most people that are uh, rejecting the one true God, well, I shouldn't say most people, because a lot of them are very much into straight-up pagan idolatry-type things, right? You see that in India and certain places where there's just, I mean, Islam, there's there's worshiping of false gods very clearly. But uh, in our kind of more paganized, like, we just kind of do whatever we want, think about how how much, it's not so much a, if you want to, they wouldn't be like, um, you know, well, I just hate God and I don't want anything to, but the reality is they, deep down they do, and really the main reality is they want something more than they want God. That's what idol worship always is. It's we want some. so you may talk to a friend who seems very nice externally, maybe even nicer than some Christians you know, but they're not a believer. Recognize that, that the evil in the heart that will bring forth God's judgment is, is not just, well, were you a murderer, like physically going around killing a bunch of people, although that certainly will do it too. It's the heart that wants something other than God. You see what I'm saying? That that is a, that is, that is the root sin of all the other sins, and so like you said too with Balaam. I mean, does he really care about cursing Israel? We're not necessarily told that. What we are told is he wants the money. He wants something else more than God, and so because of that, God is not valuable to him. This other thing is, right? Yeah. The other thing that perplexes me about Balaam is if he's a successful seer. And he's used to going to like whatever God mm-hmm. he has to broker with at that time. Yeah. Then that makes it seem like other gods are also talking to him. Right. Yeah. So, so I would say those would be there demons. Are no other gods. Right. It's it confusing. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. Yeah. So I would say there is this unseen spiritual realm that includes fallen angels, demons, right? 
Um, and, and yes, I mean, the one true God will even speak to a false prophet to, to communicate his power. If it's going to suit his glory, he's going to do it, right? Um, he, he referenced Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So he knows the personal name. All caps, Lord. That's right. Translation. He says, I have to consult Yahweh. Right. Yeah, so he knows, he knows their God. He's heard of this God, right? Yep. Good questions, good thoughts. Um, okay, so, um, oh, is it, so I, I didn't read, um, I don't really remember where I was. Oh, so I was talking about the, the garden and, and all these different things. Um, I didn't actually read it. Let me read Second Peter 2, 15 and 16. It talks about false teachers forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Right? He didn't care what he has to do, even if it's wrong. He just wants the gain. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So he loved gain, and God uses this donkey. And... Um, yeah, I think we see the foolishness of Balaam being put on display in the fact that he argues with the donkey, right, for sure. Um, uh, also, Jude 10 and 11 deals with this too. Um, we see that, uh, oh yeah, in, in 2 Peter 2.12, before that, it says that, that these false teachers, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Uh, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. So it's interesting that um, in, even in this contrast, you have the donkey, the irrational animal, ends up, because of God's power, being able to see it like it is. And Balaam, because of, as a man, has this beastly-like desire for just money. I mean, that's what greed, I mean, think about how sin makes us not like God, but like animals, right? You see what I'm saying? It, it, it corrupts and destroys the human nature. And uh, we end up acting like animals and finding judgment because of that, because we're not imaging God, which is what we were made to do. We're made to image God, not to be like base animals just going after whatever we want. And in this case, these false teachers go after immorality and all sorts of stuff, greed. It's just whatever physical, fleshly thing they want, they go after it. Um, okay, so God blesses, uh, blessing on his people is unstoppable is what we're gonna see in the next section. Um, in verses 36 through 40, uh, we see that, that uh, Bal- uh, Balaam arrives and they have this whole conversation. Um, <clears throat> but let's, let's look at uh, chapter 22, verse 41 now. In this section, we're going to see three different oracles that Balaam gives concerning Israel. And in each one, he ends up blessing God's people and revealing certain truths. Uh, in one sense, you could say it's kind of like he, he tries at three different pitches. He tries to hit a curse and he strikes out, right? Because he can only end up saying what God's going to let him say. So I'm going to, um, setting the scene, if you were to read verses 41 all the way through chapter 23, verse 6, you would see uh, kind of the scene being set up. There's these altars, and they're going to do this uh, worshipy type stuff. Don't get confused. Again, a careful reading shows you this is not them worshiping the one true God when they set up these altars. Because by the time you get to the third oracle, it becomes clear that what was going on when they made these sacrifices is he was trying to do divination over them. He would look, kind of look at the entrails and try to figure out. Because when he gets to the third one, it says after they did the sacrifices, he didn't even go look at the entrail stuff. He didn't even go look at the, the thing to try to do divination because the Holy Spirit comes and just gives him a message that he just can't, that it just overpowers everything about him, okay? Um, so that's what's happening there. But the oracle, look at verses seven, chapter 23, verse seven and following. This is poetry. Uh, oftentimes uh, prophetic words would come in poetry to them or a song. And so verse seven, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, from Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. 
How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So he basically says, listen, I can't curse them because God has not cursed them, right? So you call me to curse them. The vision though from God is, I can't curse those whom God has not cursed. This one God has not cursed. Um, that again points us back to Genesis. In, uh, uh, in when you look down and you see where it says, uh, the dust of Jacob cannot be numbered, that idea, that's back to Genesis 2, isn't it? Uh, not Genesis chapter 2, but in the book of Genesis. Genesis 13, 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you, God said, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And then God says it to Jacob in Genesis 28. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north. Anyway, you get the point. It's this dust idea. He's, he, this is what he's saying. He's going back to the promises God made, not because that's what he wants to do, but because God made those promises and they're going to come true. And Balaam can't say anything opposite of them. Does that make sense? So what we see here is number one, I can't curse them because God hasn't cursed them. And they're going to be, their descendants, yeah, they're numerous and they're going to be numerous. That's kind of what, he, so he's affirming parts of the promises from Genesis. That's what he's doing, okay? Um, Balak is not happy, right? What have you done to me? This is verse 11. I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. Um, and then Balak says, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And that becomes a refrain as well. Again, why? Because, I mean, God scared him to death with the angel here, right? He, he's gonna say what God intends for him to say and nothing more even though he wants to say something more. Oracle number two, strike number two. Not only can I not curse them, uh, I must bless them because God is faithful to his promises. So look down at verse 18, chapter 23, verse 18. Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? So many of you memorize that verse, right? It's a good, good verse about God's character. Uh, verse 20, behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has the Lord wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So, uh, God, God, based on who God is, he is not a man, he's not going to lie, he's not going to change his mind the way we change our minds. Where, oh, I got some new information, now I've got to change my mind. Okay, he, he's not gonna, his character is one that he is faithful in other words. And so what happens? Well, I have to bless them because why? God has blessed them is what Balaam is saying, right? God doesn't change his mind. He blessed them. Therefore, the, the oracle is they are blessed. That's what the oracle is. Um, and notice what else he sees. He sees a king among them. Specifically, God is their king. He's like a warrior king. He's like these horns of an ox that are gonna push away their enemies is what we see. Um, so God has blessed them in that way. Well, Balak is not happy. He says in verse 25, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. So in other words, he's kind of like, okay, fine, you couldn't curse them, but could you at least not have blessed them? Right, just stop talking. Um, and then Balaam, Balaam says, did I not tell you all that the Lord says I must do? 
Oracle number three, strike number three. Israel is like a garden of God and will have a glorious king. Look at uh, verse, um, <clears throat> so verses one and two are kind of the place where he doesn't go look for omens. I, I mentioned that earlier when they do the sacrifices. Verses three and through nine is the oracle. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. So notice again, he's saying, my eyes have been opened, right? Which is what we saw earlier the issue was. Uh, verse five, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his bucket and his seed shall be many, in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So again, we're being reminded back in Genesis, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, right? Um, we see that Israel, he looks at Israel, he's looking at Israel's uh, camp, and he says, basically, it looks kind of like we're going back to a garden here, right? He's basically saying, God is among them. He's planted them. There's these, I, I, it's kind of like where there's rivers, there's, there's plant life. In other words, the description is he's seeing spiritual vision of the fact that God is, is this, doing something special with his people, right? He's among this people. Uh, he mentions this idea of the lion and all this other stuff again, um, this, I think, points back to Genesis 49 where Judah is said to be uh, blessed and it says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall, the obedience of the shall be the obedience of the peoples. The point is, there's gonna be a king in Israel and you're gonna have to bring tribute to him one day. Right? So again, he's, he's foreseeing the importance of this kingship. Well, Balak is very frustrated. Um, and, uh, and he says, um, well, I don't have it right here. But basically he says, look, uh, you bless them three times. And he says, look, I'm not going to pay you. He says, you know, God has withheld honor from you, which means I'm not going to pay you. You didn't do your job. Get out of here. Right? So what ends up happening is we see that God not only blesses his people, he also curses his enemies. And this comes in, so he tells Balaam to go, right? You're dismissed. But Balaam has to speak everything the Lord tells him to speak. And he just got done saying, blessed are those who bless you, cursed are those who curse you. Moab's trying to curse Israel. God has one more message here. And this one is for Moab, okay? So Balaam's final oracle begins in verse um, 14. And now behold, I'm going to my people. So I'm gonna leave, but come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes were opened. So he kind of gives that same thing there. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It, sh it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Uh, Edom shall also be dispossessed. And so anyway, he goes on and he says, uh, Jacob, in verse 19, Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivor." the survivors of the city. But Balaam finally pronounces curses, right? The king of Moab is not happy because who's he cursing? Moab, right? The curse is on Moab. And why? 
Because God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God is faithful to his promise. That's what we're seeing. He's gonna do exactly what he promised. And it's gonna come through this. We see there's gonna be a king. And if you went to 2 Samuel 8, we see where David, who is that, that kind of archetypical king, comes and he in fact does beat up on Moab. He does destroy the king of Moab at that time. Um, so it looks forward to David. It looks backwards though to Genesis 3.15, right? There's, you have this, this seed of the serpent who's after the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. That's gonna happen throughout the storyline, right? And we're told in Abraham is gonna be the seed of the woman. That's where this, this hoped for redeemer is gonna come from. And God says, I'm gonna bless those who bless you, I'm gonna curse those who curse you, and through you and your offspring, all the nations are gonna be blessed. So we're looking back to that, and Moab is fitting the serpent side of things. And so we're not surprised when we hear your forehead is gonna be crushed, right? And then we see David comes, and David does that. But it doesn't end with David, does it? Because there's a bigger fulfillment that it's all looking to, which is when Jesus comes, he is the ultimate king from the line of David, right? The ultimate offspring of Abraham, Galatians, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's where this is all going. You think of Psalm 2, right? You, you look, you need to fear the one that the Lord has anointed. Kiss the son and, and worship him because there's a day of judgment coming. He, he will judge all of his enemies who have raised up against him and against his people. So we, we see um, some more uh, Countries here get, uh, get called out at the end in the, at the end of chapter 24. But let me point out two things as we draw to a close here. Number one, what becomes of Balaam? Because these, this is some good application stuff. Uh, Balaam rose and went back to his place in verse 25. But this is not the end. We'll see um, that later on in uh, Numbers 31, 16. Uh, Balaam, uh, yeah, Balaam ends up being killed by the Israelites after some battles occur. And part of that is because Balaam takes a backdoor way to get even with Israel because he didn't get paid because of Israel, I think, and Israel's God, so he wants to destroy him still. So we kind of read between the lines to some degree, but it also pretty much says, it does say this, that he incites Israel in the next rebellion that we're going to see, which I think Doug's going to cover next week. Uh, you won't see Balaam mentioned there, but, but looking back on that later in Numbers, it's going to mention Balaam was involved in that. So Balaam gets killed, um, which is interesting because back in, in chapter 23, verse 10, when he gives this vision, he says, who can count the dust of Jacob? Um, and then he says, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. There's a sense in which he, he sees it and he recognizes that's where I should be. But he won't come to the one true God, will he? He continues down a path of rebellion and living for himself. Uh, so the point is, I, I think the point is, he doesn't want judgment. He does want blessing. He doesn't want to submit to this king. He doesn't want to submit to God's rule. How many people are like that? Again, it's not that all your friends say, well, look, I just want to go to hell. I mean, you may have some that say that. If they knew what hell was, they wouldn't say that. But my point is, they don't want God's kingdom. They don't want God's rule. They don't want it to look the way God said it's going to look because they want to be king. They want whatever they want, money, power, whatever. So, so the call is to come to a place of repentance for, for us if we're not in, in following the Lord. But also when you talk to friends, don't just call them to follow God, but call them to, to repent, right? Balaam could see some truths about God, but he doesn't repent. That's the point. Um, and then second, we should be encouraged by seeing God's sovereign faithfulness put on display. Um, God had said, I'm gonna make this a great nation and through this nation, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth. God is keeping that promise. 
He is faithful, even though we've seen his people has been unfaithful over and over and over again. He's remained faithful. And that is true for us as well. So don't be like Balaam who lives by sight. We want to, we want to live by faith, right? We want, to, we want to live as God's people, trusting his promises, trusting that there is a city coming uh, that's builder is God, Hebrews 11 says, right? That, that's where we want to be. Balaam keeps looking for the city this side, the city that he can build, the city where he can get money. But we want to look for the, the city and live by faith like Abraham did, like Moses did, like all these other guys did, where they didn't obtain the fullness of that promise. They did obtain the promise, but they didn't receive the fullness of it. And so Hebrews tells us, persevere just like they persevered in believing. And we can do that because God is faithful. That's what I'm saying. We can persevere because God is faithful to his promises. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for these reminders and thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that we would be found uh, faithful. We know that we oftentimes are unfaithful and yet you don't waver towards us and so we rest in your faithfulness. But we do desire, make us faithful people. Make us look more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.